Enjoy the game. By Lionel Burney. Chapter 21. Callie. Portrait of an icon. People talk about David Beckham, but Nigel Callaghan crossed the ball and took free kicks just as well as Beckham, says Graham Taylor. He was never the paciest of players, but he had an ability to cross the ball in front of the fullback. Ask any fullback, it's horrible. Your job is to stop the cross, but if the winger tries to take you on all of the time, they at least give you a chance to get a tackle in or make a block. If the winger crosses the ball across you without having to go past, it's a different problem and it's very difficult to deal with. I felt some sympathy for him, especially when John Barnes came along and played the way he did, because there were comparisons between them. As Taylor speaks, there is a protective, almost paternal tone to his voice, but also a hint of exasperation that Callahan did not reach the heights his ability suggested he could. When Watford initially took the first division by storm, they could legitimately claim to have the finest pair of wingers in the country. On the left was John Barnes, all pace and tricks, able to evade the challenges with the grace and balance of a slalom skier. On the opposite side was Nigel Callaghan, who was stockier and difficult to knock off the ball and could supply crosses with such incredible precision. Callie's crossing was like one of those tennis machines where each ball comes out the same as the last, says Pat Rice, who played behind him at right back. He had a variety of deliveries. He could cross it from right under his feet, with hardly any backlift, or he could cross it on the run, playing it into the box with his first touch without having to control it first. The only other player I've seen like him was George Armstrong at Arsenal. Right foot or left, Cali could drive it in, float it in or curl it. Absolutely brilliant. Callaghan was born in Singapore. His father was in the Royal Air Force, and while stationed there he met a Portuguese woman, and they had a son, their only child. When Nigel was a year old, the Callaghans moved to Tenby in Wales, then on to Abbots Langley before settling in Garston. As a boy, Callaghan lived for football, and there was not a moment when he considered the possibility of doing anything other than becoming a professional. Although a bright pupil, being in the classroom all day tested his patience. He didn't like to sit still for too long. If there were no sports involved at school, it was the worst day of my life, he says. He played football for St Michael's School in Garston, joined a club and represented his district and county. Some weeks he'd play four or five matches, cycling to every game and training session on his racing bike. Watford's physio, Billy Hales, used to say Callaghan had the biggest calves he'd ever seen. There was no doubt about his ability. He had a fine touch and he could pass the ball and strike it with power without compromising the accuracy. When Tom Wally took over Watford's youth team in 1977, Callaghan was one of only three players he kept on. But when it came to awarding apprenticeships, a couple of years later, he almost missed out. In those days, the schools had a lot of sway, he says. The school nearly stopped me getting a football career because they expected me to play for them on Saturday mornings. Watford wanted to have a look at me against better players, but the school wouldn't let me go because they always played on a Saturday morning. In the end, a compromise was found, and Callaghan was released to play for Watford's youth team every other week. All that cycling had given him great strength in his legs, but his upper body had not developed at the same rate. I was only eight stone, good strong legs but no upper body. So when I came up against Arsenal and Tottenham, 
who had second-year apprentices, who'd been on the weights for two years, I got pushed off the ball. Tom said he'd have to pick and choose which games he played me in because I wouldn't get a look-in against the stronger players. It meant there were occasions when Callaghan was released to play by his school but didn't get a game for Watford in the South East Counties League. The frustration of being on the sidelines was unbearable. In spring 1979, Wally called Callaghan's father to tell him they hadn't seen enough to offer an apprenticeship. Callaghan was devastated that for the first time someone had suggested he wasn't good enough. Three days later, he channelled that emotion into a brilliant display for Hertfordshire schools in a county cup final against Essex. There were scouts from all the big clubs there, as well as Graham Taylor and Bertie Mee. Callaghan, playing in the centre of midfield, ran the game, and Hertfordshire won well. Afterwards, Wally told him, Carly boy, I think you've changed their minds with that performance. Callaghan was one of five apprentices who signed on that summer. The others were Charlie Palmer, Lucas Luca, Steve Morris and Mark Fordham. Of the five of us, says Palmer, Callaghan had the most ability by far. It was like he was a level above us. His control of the ball was incredible. You could fire the ball at him and he put it into the box by the time most people would have had it under control. Because of his size, Callaghan played wide on the right for Watford's youth team instead of in the middle, but he worked to build his strength. I got a set of dumbbells and did weights during the ad breaks when I was watching the telly, he says. Wally felt Callaghan might be a slow burner and told him to be patient. He also knew the biggest obstacle Callaghan had to overcome was his tendency to drift off. You'll be telling them what to do and Callie would be miles away, says Wally. Most of the time it was because he was already ahead of you. Wally warned Callaghan that his priority should be to establish himself in the youth team and that the breakthrough into the reserves might not come as quickly as it did for some of the other apprentices who, though not as talented, were bigger and stronger. But on the last day of the 1979-80 season, Callaghan was given his first team debut and played in a 4-0 win over Burnley at Vicarage Road. Tom said Taylor would have played me earlier, but they'd been in a bit of relegation trouble, he says. The next morning he was on the coach with the youth team heading for Portsmouth. There was nothing like being shouted at by Tom Wally for the day to keep a young player's feet on the ground. The following season, Callaghan was still eligible to play for the youth team, but Taylor knew he already had the ability to hurt second division defences. He was not terribly robust early on, and he did not find it easy to hit a level of consistency. Callaghan probably wouldn't accept it, but Taylor recognised that the winger's form wavered, not just from match to match, but also within each game. One minute inspired, the next you could almost see his mind wandering. He needed to be blooded gently and pulled out of the tee when his performances dipped. Taylor knew that the lad would need careful management, plenty of guidance and, at times, a firm hand. Very early on, Callaghan was capable of moments of great clarity. Ten days before his 18th birthday, he was sent on as a substitute in the League Cup tie against Southampton. At the start of extra time, and with almost his first touch of the game, he hit the ball from the edge of the penalty area to score Watford's sixth in the 7-1 win. It was effectively the winning goal, and it announced Callaghan's arrival. Callaghan got the headlines the following morning, but it was important to remember he was still a boy, an only child living at home with doting parents who perhaps were not strong enough with him. Although confident in his footballing ability, he was not arrogant. He didn't strut around with his shoulders back and his head high. In fact, he was quite shy, and there was an air of vulnerability about him. 
He could be temperamental and childish at times, but he was also an upbeat character, positive and bubbly and fun to be around. Not long after the Southampton game, Taylor was sitting at home one evening when there was a knock at the door. It was Callahan with a huge bag of records under his arm. Hello, boss, he said. Is Joanne in? Yes, Nige. She's upstairs, replied Taylor. Well, is it okay to see her? Only she said she'd liked these records. Taylor was flabbergasted. Here was Callahan popping round to see if he could listen to some music with his boss's daughter. I gave him 100% credit for that, says Taylor. Nobody else would even think of doing that, but he was just a lad who loved music, coming round to the boss's house and asking if his daughter was at home. You had to love him for it. Right from the start, Taylor felt an affinity for Callahan, but was worried he lacked the focus or discipline to make the most of his obvious gift. The problem was, the qualities Taylor wished would come naturally to him simply weren't in Callahan's DNA. He wasn't cut out for the strict regime. It wasn't that he was a rebel who deliberately sought trouble, it was just that he didn't have the eye for detail that Taylor longed him to have. Callahan could be careless, and he could do silly things without thinking about the consequences. As an only child, he was used to getting his own way. Graham used to keep on top of Callie, says Jerry Armstrong. At times he had a very short attention span. Graham did like to talk, but Cully would be the first whose mind wandered off. Sometimes he had to nudge him in the ribs to get him to listen up before he got in trouble. In November 1980, Pat Rice joined the club from Arsenal. Taylor saw the vastly experienced Northern Irish defender as being the ideal character to give his young right-winger a metaphorical kick up the backside. Rice was used to a very different style of defending, and it took him a few months to get used to pushing up the pitch. Graham wanted me to get forward so Nigel could stay up and pin them in, he says. When Pat was out of possession, he was used to pulling the winger deep, says Taylor, but I had to tell him that although Callahan would do that if you asked him, it wasn't the prime reason I'd signed Pat. Pat didn't have the legs to get forward and overlap Nigel, but we wanted him to get forward enough to encourage Nigel to stay up and get his crosses in. It was a very different game for Pat to get used to. Once Rice adapted, the right-hand side of Watford's team was complete. As Steve Sherwood says, Rice was the making of Callahan as an attacking threat, but he also ensured the youngster stayed switched on. I used to give Callie unmerciful stick, says Rice. Anne Swanson used to be on my back about the language. She said she'd never received so many letters of complaint about swearing. But sometimes you just had to tell Nigel in no uncertain terms what to do. Nigel Callahan volleyed the goal that got Watford's second division promotion challenge off to a superb start at St James's Park on the opening day of the 1981-82 season. His blistering first-time shot was the only goal in a victory over Newcastle United, who many people fancied for promotion. The fans voted it as goal of the season. Even the Newcastle supporters were asking for his autograph after the match. A few weeks later, John Barnes made his debut, bursting onto the scene with panache and style, lending a beautiful symmetry to Watford's front line. Inevitably, the two wide players were compared. While Barnes played on the tips of his toes, alert to every opportunity and with an almost balletic poise, Callahan was languid and laid back. At his best, Barnes ran the touchline with the delicate touch of a high-wire walker. Callahan loped about like a farmer in gumboots, but his feet came alive when he got the ball. He played a more economical game than Barnes and didn't see the point of beating a player if he didn't need to. I wasn't like John, Callahan says. I had a few tricks, 
but John used to suck people in and then skip past them. For me, if you can get the ball in the box early without beating the player, why beat him? It's only because the crowd thinks it looks better to beat the man. The game for a winger was all about working out how to beat your opponent. You went up against the left-back, whoever it was, and you kept him guessing. If they think you're going to take them on, but you cross it early instead, it puts them in two minds, and once they're in two minds, you've won the battle. The worst thing to hear as a winger is the centre-forward saying, I never got the service, gaffer. My job was to get crosses in the box. Ross Jenkins was the first centre-forward to thrive on the delivery from both wings, but says it was their reliability that made the pair so effective. They were both clean and refined players. They could get the ball into the middle without needing a lot of time or space. They could dig it out from the byline or with a defender very close. Nigel had those stubby little legs, but he could curl the ball in without a lot of space. The beauty of it was that you knew they were going to deliver. You could make the run and you'd know the ball would come. Defenders tried to kick them, but they were not easily intimidated. Fortunately for me, the lunatics in those days were the left-backs, says Barnes, Mark Dennis, Pat van der Howe and Stuart Pearce. They all used to try to go right through Nigel, and he'd say to me after 20 minutes of getting kicked, come on, let's switch sides, but I wasn't falling for that. I remember we did swap over against Newcastle once, and they had John Anderson at right-back. He was a really hard case. The moment Nigel got the ball, Anderson went in hard, and he came running back over and said to me, OK, let's switch back. While Barnes could thrill the supporters with one electrifying run, which would often outweigh in their minds the things that didn't come off, Taylor felt the crowd was too quick to criticise Callahan. They would groan if the cross hit the first defender or failed to reach its target. There were times when Nigel could be miles ahead of everyone else on the pitch, absolutely miles ahead, but the crowd wouldn't necessarily appreciate what I saw. Nigel would hit the early cross and it would be exactly what we were asking of him, but if the runner was not there, it looked like a bad ball. I'll be disappointed with the runner, who had not been there, not with Nigel, for hitting the early ball. Nigel was unfortunate because of his body language. When he didn't get his cross in, he'd drop his shoulders, and it would give the impression he wasn't bothered, but he was bothered. John dribbled and took people on and created a lot of excitement. Nigel could dribble, but he often didn't need to beat his man because he could get his cross in first. He played the game very simply on occasion, but he had this habit of dropping his shoulders, loping about. I used to say to him that it would help if, when he lost the ball, he suddenly ran and demanded it back, because that gives to the crowd a certain impression. But that just wasn't Nigel's way. Attackers can be the worst defenders, Callahan says. You do ball watch sometimes and you can be lazy, but I wanted to win games as much as anyone in the team. It used to ruin my weekend if we lost. Graham Taylor often defended Callahan publicly and urged supporters not to let their frustration suppress the obvious talents of a creative young player, but, behind closed doors, he was frequently critical of Callahan's application to the job. On more than one occasion, he read Callahan his fortune, saying that unless he acted more professionally, he ran the risk of squandering a potentially brilliant career and would be finished with the game prematurely. Burgers were his vice, not beer and after training he and Barnes would often head to one of the burger joints. Taylor wasn't too concerned about Callahan's eating habits because he worked them so hard in training, but it was Callahan's application and concentration that led him down too often. Taylor's frustration stemmed from the fact that Callahan seemed unable to look ahead and anticipate the consequences of his actions. It irritated the manager, who had an obsessive eye for detail and superb organisational skills, 
that the same qualities did not come naturally to one of his best players. If it had been the army, and Callaghan would argue that at times it felt like it was, he would have been the private getting the bollocking for lacing his boots incorrectly or putting uneven creases in his trousers. In January 1982, just after Watford had knocked Manchester United out of the FA Cup and with the team on course for promotion to the First Division, Taylor took the remarkable step of asking Callaghan to move in with him and his family for a week. Callaghan packed a few things and checked into the spare room at the Taylor's house in Nascot Wood with Graham, Rita and their two daughters, Joanne and Karen. I know it sounds strange, but I tried to show him how he should be living, says Taylor, what he should be eating, how he should prepare for a game. It wasn't that he was late for training, but was he rushing? Was he preparing in the best way each day? I tried to show him how I thought he should behave if he wanted to make a career in football. He had to be more professional in his private life. I used to get people phoning up telling tales on him that they'd seen him throwing litter out of the car. I tried to make him realise that as a footballer certain sections of the community would recognise him and that he had to behave in a certain way. Having never had a son myself, I sort of took to Nigel. I recognised in him a great talent. I did love him, and I could see there was a danger he could lose his way. Being arrogant, I thought I could show him. Reluctantly, Callaghan agreed to Taylor's request, but found it made him the butt of the jokes at the training ground. I don't know why he made me do that. But he had his philosophy on it, he says. I knew I couldn't say no, in case he'd drop me. That week I wasn't allowed to use my car, so I had to make my own way to training and back. He saw it as taking me under his wing, but I don't think he realised the other side of it. I was getting awful stick for being teacher's pet. They said, oh, you're trying to shag the gaffer's daughter. I got on well with Joanne. She was a really nice person, but I didn't want to go out with her. There's a lot of banter that goes on in football, and I don't think he realised that side of it. It didn't do me any favours. At the end of the week, Callaghan was brilliant in the 2-0 win over West Ham United in the FA Cup. It was his diving header that was bundled over the line by Armstrong for the first goal, and the second was a moment of insouciant cheek. The ball came across the penalty area and fell to Callaghan at the far post. He was facing away from goal, so he back-heeled it past the goalkeeper. You could argue that Taylor's tactic had brought the best out of Callaghan, but all he wanted to do was go home. Graham asked me to stay a bit longer, but I thought, no, I've stayed here a week. I've done what you asked. I didn't see why I should. The following Saturday we played Derby and he dropped me to the bench. I couldn't believe it. How could he drop me after how I'd played against West Ham? It was all because I'd moved out of his house. When Watford reached the First Division, Callaghan flourished. He couldn't believe the space some teams allowed him, and he punished them for it. As he loaded the bullets for Blissett and Jenkins, he redefined the role of an outside right. With Callaghan on one side and Barnes on the other, Watford made wingers fashionable again. Callaghan used to laugh when people dismissed them as a kick-and-rush side. Look at one of the goals against Sunderland in the 8-0 game, he says. Ian Bolton hits a 40-yard pass down the line. It landed so perfectly, I didn't even have to break my stride, so I crossed it with my first touch and Luther scored. Three touches and the ball has travelled 60, 70 yards and it's a goal. Sunderland didn't have a chance to stop it and people say it's hit and hope football. There's nothing hit and hope about it. Ian's pass took great skill. It could have gone off for a throw, run too far or gone to the defender, but it didn't. It landed in exactly the right place. We did things like that all the time and we didn't get the credit we deserved. 
Watford's first two seasons in Division One were the finest and most consistent of Callaghan's career. The impact he made on the top flight was immediate, as he scored twice in the 4-1 win at Southampton and again against Swansea. Then he scored Watford's first two goals as they tore Sunderland to pieces. Both were headers, and at half-time he was winding up Luther Blissett, reminding him that he was the club's top scorer of the new season. "'I haven't even started scoring with my feet yet, Luther,' he joked in the dressing room. "'I went out and got three in the second half,' says Blissett. "'That shut him up for a few minutes.' The Wednesday before dismantling Sunderland, Callaghan and Barnes had both made their first appearances for the England under-21 team in a 4-1 victory over Denmark in a qualifying game for the 1984 European Championships. There were seven debutants in that England side because a quirk of scheduling meant two tournaments overlapped. On the same day the qualifying matches for the 1984 tournament got underway, the final for the 1983 European Championship was being played. A more experienced England side took on Germany, meaning there were opportunities for some new faces to play against Denmark. Both Watford players did well, but it was Barnes who impressed most. He was fast-tracked through to the senior squad, and although he didn't get his first cap until the following May, he had already been identified by Bobby Robson as international material. There were spells when Callaghan was Watford's most effective attacker, but when it came to the Player of the Season award, he was behind Wilf Rostron and Luther Blissett in the poll. As Graham Taylor wrote in the club's official yearbook, Nigel is one of the most underrated players by Watford supporters. I think people tend to take his crossing for granted, but the quality of it often amazes me. The following season he was outstanding against Levski Spartak in Sofia and scored two incredible goals at Notts County, both first-time shots, one with his left foot, the other with his right but he never quite had the supporters eating out of his hand the way Barnes did. Towards the end of the season, with the FA Cup final approaching, Callaghan was named on the standby list for the England Senior Squad's tour to South America. He feels a flat game at Wembley cost him a call-up, he says. A week after losing to Everton, he played in the second leg of the European Under-21 Championship final against Spain at Bramall Lane, Sheffield. I put the ball on Mark Hately's head for the winner, but afterwards Bobby Robson virtually ignored me, he says. One game, the FA Cup final, and he decided I wasn't good enough for his England team. Barnes did go on the England tour, and he tormented the Brazilians with the sort of flair and invention they considered their birthright. Barnes scored a brilliant goal in the 2-0 win at the Maracanã Stadium in Rio. Callaghan never came as close to an England call-up again. It was very rare to see Callaghan without his ghetto blaster or headphones. Music was his passion and it followed him everywhere. People used to say that they could hear his car coming from half a mile away because of the music and he once blamed an away defeat on the fact he'd forgotten to take his tape player with him on the team coach. He liked nightclubs, but for the beat, not the booze. After meeting the resident disc jockey at Bailey's in Watford, he started DJing over in Leighton Buzzard. That he thought, was far enough away from Taylor's sphere of influence that he might not get found out. Then I heard one of the directors lived in Leighton Buzzard, so I was a bit worried. However, Taylor wasn't concerned about Callaghan's love of music, or even his work as a DJ, as long as he didn't do it on a Thursday or a Friday night. I didn't drink in those days anyway, says Callaghan. A couple of lager shandies and that was me. Graham thought there was no problem with me being behind the decks. He'd rather I was there than propping up the bar. After a while he was asked to play the music 
at an evening for under-eighteens, and Callie's disco was born. I loved it, he says. I like being able to put something on for them. When I was a kid, I had football, but not everyone is sporty. There really wasn't much to entertain kids in those days. We put a few posters up around the schools, and the first one was held at a community hall in Woodside. About 80 kids turned up, which wasn't too bad. It was well supervised, there was no alcohol, so they asked me to do another one, and 150 turned up, which was a bit of a squeeze. So we moved to a bigger venue, and we were getting 250 people or more. In the end, it was becoming a bit too much to do, so I had to give it up. If music energised and excited him, structure and routine had his mind wandering and eventually he'd drift off. And there was a lot of structure and routine at Graham Taylor's Watford. Callahan needed micromanaging, with constant reminders to work on the weaker parts of his game. But he didn't respond well to being watched all the time, and he thought that each telling off was a case of him being singled out. He couldn't see that some of the little things he did made matters worse. He would be spotted wandering across a hotel lobby half an hour before dinner with a huge bag of crisps, and then wonder why Taylor was pulling his hair out. You didn't step out of line because Taylor would knock you back into line, he says. There was one time when five of us got fined for being one minute late for training. We'd actually been at the training ground early, but we were having a cup of tea. We said, come on, gaffer, we're only one minute late. He said, be one minute early. You can't say anything to that, can you? He used to say that normal working people had to get up at 7.30 to be at work for nine. We started at 10.30, so we were already lucky. So why not have your cup of tea and be out early? For the players... Callahan was often a source of amusement. He bought an Alsatian puppy and didn't want to leave it at home all day, so he left him in the car at the training ground. When he came back, the dog was growling and snarling and wouldn't let him open the door. I was struggling not to laugh, but Nigel, Steve Harrison and I were trying to work out what to do, says Taylor. The dog had chewed half the driver's seat and all of his music cassettes. He was saying, Oh, the little bastard's chewed up all me tapes, so I said, I'll leave this one with you, Steve. One day his car backfired and the engine burst into flames while he was sitting waiting to pull out of Occupation Road. The bonnet was so hot the paint was bubbling. I was right next to the petrol station, so about three fire engines came down. Another time he installed a new stereo and huge speakers which drained the battery and left him stranded on a busy dual carriageway. Some of the young players used to race from the training ground to Vicarage Road. Callahan in his Ford Capri, Kenny Jacket in his Datsun, and Steve Terry in an Austin Maxi. In a way, the three cars defined them as players and characters. I probably shouldn't say this, but there was some overtaking that definitely shouldn't have been happening, Callahan says. If anyone found out, it was always me that got told off. During an end-of-season trip to Thailand, the players had a day at the beach and hired jet skis. Callie was bombing about all over the place, says Colin West. He got lost and ended up miles away, round the bay and on the next beach. He caught the propeller on some rocks and it had broken and the guys from the hire company were chasing him for the rest of the holiday for him to pay for it. He had to hide from them and when they caught up with him he said, No, no, not me, someone else, someone else. Callahan saw these events as typical of the sort of thing that would happen to him but Taylor tried to explain to him that his own actions had increased the odds. On away trips, Callahan would often share a room with Ian Bolton, an older, wiser and calmer member of the squad. I used to joke that I was his babysitter, says Bolton. 
Callahan would take his computer games console with him and plug it into the back of the television in their room and play into the early hours. All you could hear all night was bleep, bleep, bleep of the space invaders, says Bolton. In the end, I'd get up and play it with him. He was a lot of fun to be with, and having him around sort of kept you young as well. Callahan didn't like being away for too long. He liked to be at home, where things were comfortable and familiar. Even when he was well established in the first team, a star on the verge of the England team, he'd spend two or three nights a week with Tom Wally at coaching sessions for the young players. He wanted to be with me all the time, says Wally. Callahan describes Wally as, like another dad to me. He was a good boy. Interesting. But in the end, Graham had to say to me, he can't come down with you all the time. When Callahan moved out of his parents' house and bought a place in Redbourne, it didn't last long and he went back. I wasn't the best person to live on my own at that time and it was a long way out, away from my friends. The foreign trips were fine up to a point. There was a long trip to New Zealand in 1982 and Watford played against their World Cup team. They got to play at the home of the All Blacks in Wellington, hallowed turf that was reserved for rugby. But Callaghan remembers feeling homesick. It was good at times, but I also thought I wish I was at home. The following summer they went to Jamaica. That was good because Taylor didn't come. Even the incredible trip to China in 1983 turned sour. He took his Walkman to the Great Wall, of course, but fell out with the manager after missing an open goal in one of the matches. I snapped back. You don't think I'm meant to miss it, do you? Graham said. If we miss open goals in Europe next season, we'll be out. I knew that. He didn't need to tell me that. But China was a PR job. There was nothing at stake and it should have been fun. He dropped me for the last game and it wasn't fun. It put a dampener on things. The thing was, Graham was very overpowering in those days. I don't think the players could have an opinion. If you said something, he'd always have an answer to come back at you with. Ask him why you weren't in the team and he'd say, because your name is not in one of those spots marked 1 to 11. You couldn't argue with him. Sometimes you'd go into his office feeling 5 foot 8 and come out feeling 4 foot 6. For the first time in almost three years, Taylor dropped Callahan from the first team in November 1984. He was left out for a few games, or sat on the bench, or found he was the one substituted. No disrespect to Worrell Sterling, but he wasn't as good as me. If you spoke to him, his eyebrows used to go right up. He wouldn't say boo to a goose. I used to get dropped here and there, but I was getting fed up being made the scapegoat. I don't care what Graham Taylor says. There was one set of rules for me and one set for John Barnes. There was one game where we were both wearing long-sleeved shirts. We were the only two, and that was one of the things Graham hated. Either we were all in long sleeves or all in short sleeves. We came in at half-time and we hadn't been doing too well and Graham threw a short-sleeved shirt at me and said, Fucking put that on. He didn't say anything to John. Barnes, he could do no wrong. The manager was harder on me than the others. All I wanted was to be treated equally. Barnsley hated the cold weather, but my hands feel the cold as much as John's do. Jerry Armstrong has a different perspective on it. Graham did used to pick on you. Wind you up a bit to get the best out of you, he says. He said to me at half-time once, Their centre-halves don't even know we've got a centre-forward out there today. Are you going to hit them today or what? So first chance I got in the second half, I went up for the ball and took out both their defenders in one go. One with my body, one with my arm. 
I looked over at the bench and Sam Ellis was doing the mime of a fisherman reeling in his catch. Graham would say things to get you to give that extra bit more. Yes, he would pick on Nigel, but he picked on everyone. He'd be all over him, over every little thing, while on the other hand praising Barnsley. Then after five or six games he'd switch it. So it was equal. I wouldn't say he had his favourites. I can remember one game where Callie hadn't played particularly well, but he'd worked hard. He was sitting in the corner trying to hide because he knew what was coming. Graham said, Nigel, where are you? And Callie peered out from behind whoever he was trying to hide behind. I'm here, boss, fearing the worst, you know. Graham said, Well done, son. At least you've been trying. Barnsey, what the hell is up with you, you lazy bastard? But Callie was sensitive. He took in every word that was directed to him and maybe didn't hear what was being said to other people. I don't think he realised that it was the same for all of us. It became almost comical, says Callaghan. Even Graham made a joke of it in the end. If there was a meeting before training, it wasn't to tell us how well we'd done. So we'd be up in that little room at Stanmore and he'd say, Right, Callaghan, if there's a bollocking to be given, you're usually included. Graham did have a soft spot for me, I think, and he tried to guide me. It was a love-hate relationship, I suppose. I don't bear any grudges, and I can't knock him because he wanted the best for me, but I didn't like some of his methods. He could coach, and he could make you a better player. Ron Atkinson couldn't do that. Taylor and I had our fallouts, but he definitely made me a better footballer. He worked on your game, and he was very patient. Taylor did care for Callahan but accepts that some of the things he did probably seemed overbearing. Nigel might have felt I was on his back a little bit much, he says. Increasingly, Taylor was worried that his warnings were going unheeded. I was so concerned about him. I remember he came in to negotiate his contract at Watford and he wanted a pay rise. I said I would give him the rise he wanted, but only if he put a certain percentage into a pension. He didn't like that. I can understand him feeling I was always on to him. Here was a lad who had it all who could do things on the pitch that others could not, and there was a very sensitive side to him. I felt that there were things he could do to help himself, but he wasn't doing them. The relationship between the pair deteriorated towards the end of 1985. Being left out of the team always felt like a punishment to Callaghan. He couldn't bear kicking his heels. If a game was cancelled or I wasn't playing, I was the worst person to be around, he says. Substituted against Aston Villa in November and then dropped for the next match at West Ham, Callaghan handed in a transfer request. With a sense of timing that was typical, Callaghan chose the morning of the home match against Luton Town to tell the manager. Probably not the best time to do it, I must admit, he says. To make matters worse, Watford lost 2-1 to their rivals that afternoon and Taylor was livid. The thing was, Callaghan didn't want to leave. He wanted to hurt Taylor and give him a taste of the feeling that being left out had caused him. For the first time since breaking into the first team, he was experiencing life in the reserves, and relations reached an all-time low. Callaghan's unhappiness followed him onto the pitch. He was sent off for a wild challenge against Charlton's Steve Grit in a reserve team game. Graham and I had a massive fallout, says Callaghan. I was fed up of being made scapegoat, and I told him exactly what I thought. I put in a transfer request because I was fed up with being treated like that, not because I wanted to leave the club. Taylor knew Callaghan had his faults, but he couldn't just sell a player who could do the things he did. As Kenny Jackett says, Graham K 
kept going back to Cali a few times when we thought he might move him on because it was hard to find forwards as good as that. Callahan spent the summer on the transfer list, but if there were any inquiries from other clubs, he didn't hear about them. I came back for pre-season and was totally ignored by the manager, he says. I was told I wasn't in his plans and then, before the first game of the season against Oxford, he said, Barnes has got a knock. If he's not fit, you'll play. I thought, bloody hell, he's spoken to me. As it was, Barnes was fit in time and scored as Watford won 3-0. Callaghan was on the bench. We were 3-0 up and there were about two minutes to go and he turned to me and told me to get stripped off. I said, are you having a laugh? He said, no. Charlton have come in for you, so this can be your way to say goodbye to the crowd. Callaghan went to speak to Lenny Lawrence, Charlton's manager, but decided the offer was not good enough. I went back to Taylor and told him I'd turned it down and that I was going to stay and fight for my place. He said, No, you're not seeing things right here. You're not going to play for me again. There's no fighting for your place. He went back to Lawrence and agreed to join Charlton. But the transfer was delayed a couple of times. A fortnight later, Taylor said to Callahan, I'm sorry how all this has turned out. Why don't you come and play at Norwich? Callahan played centre-forward at Carrow Road and again in a 1-0 win over Manchester United before regaining his place on the right wing a couple of weeks later. After that, he played more games than he missed for a few months, and he was taken off the transfer list. Until I went on the transfer list, I don't think I was getting the respect from the Watford crowd I deserved. After I came off it, they were the best they'd ever been with me. Every time I went to take a corner, they were clapping me. In February, Callaghan put the cross that led to Luther Blissett's winning goal in an FA Cup fourth-round victory over Chelsea at Vicarage Road. Everything was going well, and even my relationship with Graham had improved, and then he called me in and said that he'd had an offer from Derby County and that it might not be a bad idea to go and talk to them. It all happened very quickly. One minute I was going up to Derby to talk to them, the next I'd signed the contract. I heard Elton wasn't happy he'd let me go for £140,000. I signed for them and my dad was very disappointed in me. He more or less disowned me for leaving Watford. He couldn't believe it, although he did come and watch my first derby game. Part of Taylor's prophecy came true. Callaghan's days as a professional footballer were over by the time he was 30 and he was turning out for Berkhamsted Town when he should still have been able to play in the upper reaches of the league. He began to do more work as a DJ and, in the mid-90s, he appeared in a documentary on Sky Television working on one of the Greek islands. He had gained a lot of weight, and what had once been an instantly recognisable silhouette, whether topped by a curly perm or spikes and a mullet, was gone. It's easy to dismiss Callahan's career as unfulfilled or chide him for wasting his talent, but that would be disingenuous. As Graham Taylor says, I would never, ever name an all-time Watford team without Nigel Callaghan at outside right. End of chapter 21 Next time, Wembley beckons again after the Battle of Highbury.